This week, McClatchy receives bid for assets, travel port lenders file counterclaims, Sable Permian note holders move for examiner. More on all this and as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in high yield, distressed debt, and bankruptcy. I'm Mark Fisher. And I'm Raksha Manchanath. This week, legal analyst Sean Daly discusses the unusual circumstances surrounding Sanchez Energy's exit from bankruptcy. It's Sunday, July 12th. At a July 6th hearing in the McClatchy bankruptcy cases, Judge Michael Wiles held that a number of the claims asserted by the McClatchy Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors in its standing motion regarding McClatchy's 2018 refinancing transactions are colorable. These colorable claims include fraudulent transfer claims that could unwind the second and third lien obligations, breach of fiduciary duties, equitable subordination of Chatham Asset Management's claims, and certain lien perfection issues. However, the court will not rule on the second element required to grant standing whether the debtors unjustifiably refuse to pursue the claims until the results of the debtor's sale process are known. Quote, we just do not know what values we're fighting over in the middle of a sale process, the court said, acknowledging the debtor's concerns about the potential litigation costs should be taken into account through a cost-benefit analysis under the unjustified refusal prong of the test and the question of whether pursuit of the claims is likely to benefit the estates. On July 8, the debtors announced they had received two or more qualified bids by the July 1st bid deadline and scheduled an auction for July 9th, which was later moved to July 10th. However, on July 8th, Alden Global Capital filed a partially redacted objection seeking to preclude McClatchy's pre-petition secured parties from credit bidding their second and third lien claims and certain additional claims in the auction. Judge Wiles denied Alden Global Capital's motion at a hearing Thursday morning, determining that in light of the unanimous opinion of the parties charged with protecting the interests of the states, he was, quote, not prepared to impose a competing bidder's judgment or my judgment over those who are actually participating in the process. He further remarked, quote, I hope I won't regret it on July 24th, a reference to the debtor's proposed sale hearing. July 15th is the debtor's deadline to file the successful bid with the court. On Tuesday night, the ad hoc group of Sable Permian senior secured note holders filed a motion for appointment of an examiner with a, quote, highly tailored and limited mandate to investigate, quote, the debtor's intercompany and affiliate relationships and prior conduct of the debtor's board, management, and sponsors, and make recommendations regarding further reforms to the debtor's governance that may be necessary to assure a fair and transparent process. According to the motion, the debtors filed Chapter 11, quote, amidst apparent infighting, stalemates, and self-serving actions by and around the private equity sponsors. Energy and Minerals Group and Onyx Point Global Management, quote, who have enjoyed and appear to continue to wield an extraordinary degree of control over the debtors' governance. The known holders acknowledge that the debtors' proposed bidding procedures provide for the appointment of a special committee, but maintain that this, quote, does not obviate the need for independent review and reform. The note holders assert that they have already seen evidence that the sponsors may have wielded their unchecked authority over the debtor's governance in service of their own interests and to the detriment of the debtors, citing unusual delay in negotiations over forbearance agreements that have, quote, caused the debtors to remain in open default for days and weeks. At best, quote, the debtor's conduct in the run-up to these cases indicates a sponsor group and board-level governance that appear to be too fractious, inefficient, and dysfunctional to lead an effective restructuring process, the noteholders conclude. 
At worst, the debtor's governance may be captive to sponsors indifferent or opposed to the best interest of their estates and willing to put estate value at risk in service of their own interests. In the ongoing travel port dispute on July 3rd, Wilmington Savings Fund Society as agent under the first lien credit agreement, filed an answer to the complaint filed by Travelport on June 5th against WSFS predecessor as agent, Bank of America. The complaint seeks a declaration that no event of default occurred as a result of its $1.15 billion asset transfer to an unrestricted subsidiary. WSFS's answer included counterclaims seeking a finding that the asset transfer was a breach of the credit agreement and constitutes events of default thereunder. In centering its argument on the prohibition of the use of the, quote, similar business investment basket, WSFS asserted that travel ports permitted investment capacity to move assets into the new and unrestricted subsidiaries under the first link credit agreement was $1.033 billion at the time of the transfer, in excess of $200 million less than what the company claimed, and not enough to allow for the $1.15 billion of the value of the transferred assets. The counterclaims also seek a finding that because of the breach, the secured lenders continue to have liens on the transferred assets, securing the obligations under the credit agreements, which liens are senior in priority to, quote, any purported lien securing the insider financing. WSFS further asserts that the asset transfer is avoidable as an intentional fraudulent transfer and was a breach of the duty of good faith and fair dealing. On the island of Puerto Rico, AMBAC Assurance Corp. filed a motion to strike as violative of PROMISA certain provisions of the amended plan support agreement by and among the PROMISA Oversight Board, the PBA ERS, and the amended PSA creditors as holders of certain GEO bond and PBA bond claims. AMBAC asserts that the motion to strike is aimed at irreversible issues associated with the PSA, including that under the PSA. The Commonwealth is committed to a plan of adjustment that cannot be confirmed and also is committed to, quote, sending $100 million of the Commonwealth's resources to parties that have no long-term commitments in the Commonwealth. AMBAC asked the court to use its equitable powers to strike several provisions, including the breakup fee provision, the oversight board's covenant to prevent parties in interest from bringing claim objections, and provisions within the amended PSA that give certain amended PSA creditors an impermissible veto over the form and substance of any plan of adjustment the oversight board proposes or debt securities to be issued thereunder. The motion states that these aspects of the PSA both violate PROMISA and hinder the ability of the Commonwealth to effectively restructure. Also on Tuesday, the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority filed a motion seeking allowance of a $136 million administrative expense claim for Luma Energy. The Luma motion seeks administrative expense claims for any accrued and unpaid front-end transition obligations due from PREPA under the recently announced T&D system operation and maintenance agreement between PREPA, the Puerto Rico Public-Private Partnerships Authority, and Luma. Luma estimates that the total potential front-end transition obligations and thus maximum allowed administrative expense claim would be approximately $136.4 million, of which approximately $59.4 million has been deposited in a reserve account at PREPA that will fund the obligations and be replenished in the ordinary course of PREPA's business. The motion states, The 15-year agreement to operate, manage, maintain, repair, and restore PREPA's transmission and distribution system contemplates an estimated 10-month to 12-month transition period before the contract commences in 2021, and the contract can also be extended. 
The Puerto Rico Justice Department delivered to the Special Independent Prosecutors Panel preliminary investigation documents that target Governor Wanda Vasquez and other administrative officials. The officials were referred to the panel by former Justice Secretary Denise N. Longo Quinones, who was forced to resign on Friday, July 3rd, after losing the confidence of Vasquez. The move comes after the SIP panel approved a resolution ordering the Commonwealth Justice Department to immediately turn over the documents. The resolution states that Longo Quinones and the Justice Department Division of Public Integrity and Comptroller Affairs referred six preliminary investigations for possible prosecution. In a statement posted on social media, she said that the investigation that targeted the governor and other high-level officials involved earthquake relief supplies and commenced in January. She said another investigation into COVID-19 test contracts targeted personnel in the office of the governor. During a press conference, Vasquez denied reports that she called for Longo Quinone's resignation because of the former Justice Secretary had referred to a preliminary investigation to the SIP panel involving the manhandling of earthquake relief supplies earlier this year that allegedly targeted the governor and other administrative officials. The governor said that she was unaware of the referral and does not know if one exists. Vasquez, however, asserted she has nothing to fear from a SIP investigation because she has never broken the law. Other top stories this past week were U.S. trustee appoints seven-member UCC in Chesapeake cases. Hertz sells about $1 billion of used fleet to Enterprise Holdings. Briggs & Stratton prepares to file Chapter 11 as soon as next week with prepackaged or prearranged plan to conduct 363 sale process for all assets, ABL lenders to provide dip. And now, as always, here's Jim from Houston with the week ahead. Well, thank you, Roxy, and greetings y'all from 100 Degree Houston, where life is once again more than ever like your favorite Towns Van Zant song. Towns, of course, a native Texan, greatest songwriter in American history next to Hank Williams I. And I will stand on Bob Dylan's lawn furniture in my cowboy boots and say that. Anyways, all sorts of stuff to keep us occupied this week, and earnings just right around the corner. Yippee. Anyways, start with Sunday, July 12th. It's my daughter's birthday. She's 10, and there is also forbearance expirations for California resources and high crush. Monday, July 13th, sale hearing in Gavilan and an omnibus hearing in J.C. Penney. Tuesday, July 14th, second day hearing in Extraction Oil and Gas and an omnibus hearing in McClatchy. Wednesday, it's odds of July. We all know what the 15th of the month means. Coupons are due. This time it's from Denbury, Noble Corp, SM Energy, and California Resources. Grace period expirations for California Calfrac, excuse me, and CBL, forbearance expiration for Valaris, approach resources plan, and DS is due. And if that's not enough, there's court stuff related to Hertz, Borden, and Diamond Offshore, among others. Thursday, July 16th, forbearance expiration in J. Jill, DS hearing in Centric, and a stalking horse bidder designation hearing in Exide. And earnings from Netflix. I assume everybody expects their earnings to be good. If that's so, no thanks to me because I'd rather listen to my Towns Van Zant records. I'd highly recommend Live at the Old Quarter in Houston, which is actually now down in Galveston. Anyways, on to Friday, second day hearing in Pixis, DS hearing in Neiman, and I'm saving the best for 
for less, and it doesn't include me. My friends and colleagues, Mark Fisher and Sean Daly, are going to talk to you about Sanchez Energy and their journey through the Chapter 11 process. Sanchez, named near and dear to me, three generations of a West Texas family. It's like Buddenbrooks, the famous Thomas Mann novel about grain merchants of the Hanseatic League on the Baltic. All those Sanchez is, of course, natural gas in the Eagle for a gentleman. Take it away. Thank you, Jim. I'm here with Sean Daly, legal analyst at Reorg, and we're going to discuss uh, Sanchez Energy, um, which had uh, just had a planned confirmation, uh, but it's been a really wild uh, ride for uh, the EMP. Uh, the company had filed for bankruptcy last year, and uh, you know this is well before uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, when oil prices um, and natural gas prices were a little bit higher. Uh, company had $1.75 billion in uh, pre petition debt and I uh, was going to go through uh, you know working through their plan uh, there's secure debt unsecured debt um, certain um, you know all the stakeholders are probably going to get some some form of um, of recovery but then um, COVID-19 hit uh, oil prices uh, collapse collapsed and um, at some point uh, the uh, dip um, parties actually um, alleged that they were impaired and uh, then the company came up with a plan um, which targeted a total enterprise value of uh, just $80 million and this is relative to uh, $150 million dip but also the $1.75 billion of pre-petition debt so you know things certainly uh, went awry and um, the plan short of some challenges had um, equity go going to uh, this now impaired dip. Uh, but the things I wanted to focus on was uh, it's a little bit um, unusual. And, uh, you know, Sean will go into this. Uh, there's still a number of issues uh, that are outstanding. So when oil prices collapsed, the company, you know, did everything they could to try and cut costs, reject contracts. And a bunch of those are, uh, believe it or not, still up in the air. Um, so, Sean, why don't you talk to us about... Um, you know, why this uh, confirmation um, and exit is, um, you know, so unusual. What's what's still outstanding? Thanks, Mark. Yeah, this has definitely been a highly contentious case with a, a unique plan structure. Coming into confirmation, the debtor still had a very significant um, lien-related challenge litigation outstanding and operatorship dispute with Gavilan resources over uh, certain of their Comanche assets, and then uh, actually a, a number of outstanding midstream contract issues and uh, affiliate-related issues. Great. So let's go through those um, one by one. Um, could you provide? So you talked about um, the midstream issues. Talked about uh, you know Gavilan lien challenge. Like what? What are the specifically? What are the um, disputes there um, with each of those? Sure. So the Gavilan operatorship dispute uh, is a, a dispute over whether the debtors breached a joint development agreement, uh, as Gavilan alleged they did pre-petition, uh, with the implication being that if the, the debtors breached uh, that, uh, Gavilan would obtain proportionately greater rights over uh, the direction of that agreement. Um, and then the other midstream related issues, um, 
there's a, a Sanchez midstream affiliate. Uh, the unsecured creditors committee and an ad hoc group of unsecured creditors had raised issues with uh, purportedly off market terms between the debtors and this this affiliate, uh, among other affiliate issues. And just in in general, the debtors had not they had discussed the need to review their entire midstream contract portfolio during the cases, but uh, by the by the time the cases accelerated with you know this this post corona need to just get to confirmation quickly they really hadn't addressed any of their midstream portfolio so with these out, you know with these outstanding issues if you could go through them how does a company emerge with so much um, that's unknown i understand wanting to get out um, quickly but these are all significant issues you know for instance um, you have parties challenging um, the uh, the, the, the secure parties liens, right? I mean, how, how is the company able to emerge um, with, a, uh, with, with a viable plan? If you could go through each of those, each one, how, how are they each addressed um, in, the, um, in the plan and uh, you know, what's going to happen going forward? Yeah, sure. So the lien-related litigation, this, this is probably the most interesting feature of the plan, the debtors would only issue upon the effective date 20% of the reorganized equity to the dip lenders, and they would reserve the remaining 80% for the resolution of the lien-related litigation, uh, which would be streamlined, as I mentioned before. There was an ad hoc group of unsecured note holders and the UCC that were, that were weighing in on a lot of issues. Uh, the plan just provided for a single essentially unsecured creditor representative to continue litigating uh, against the uh, the dip lenders and reorganized debtors. The Gavilan operatorship dispute uh, had already started trial in early March and then been pushed a number of times. Uh, Judge Isker at, at one point very strongly prodded the parties towards settlement. The plan essentially just preserved the ability to continue Litigating that, uh, and I mean, really, the the same with any of the midstream contracts. Uh, it was just sort of you know agreed that these these things can all get uh, pushed in, until later. But I would say, really, the the defining feature of the plan was providing for the uh, future resolution of the lien related litigation with that delayed uh, distribution of, of equity based on the uh, the merits. And you said that was 80% of the equity that's going to be held back? Correct. Yeah, so a, a pretty large amount. So then how do you lose any protections or um, any benefits um, by being in uh, – in bankruptcy, so now that the company has has emerged, um, is there, are there still enforcement mechanisms? Like, what if um, certain parties just can't reach an agreement? Uh, I mean, could this last? Could this go on for years and years? Well, I think the the upside is, I mean, the the debtors' confirmed plan will bind uh, prepetition creditors. Really, all that's left are a series of sort of bilateral disputes that are a little bit easier to work out. I mean, even if you have a very large rejection damages claim, that just comes in to, uh, you know, potentially dilute the unsecured claims pool. But 
there's there's no sort of downside for the debtors. They you know continue to have the benefit of uh, the automatic stay and, and other provisions of the bankruptcy code. So there's no uh, no particular distinction to being in the in the post confirmation period to do some of these uh, you know uh, additional operational or uh, sort of cleanup litigation matters. Thanks. And have you have you seen this before? Just out of curiosity, uh, where a company emerges with so many uh, issues still outstanding? I've never seen so many sort of major issues left open. Uh, you know, in, in theory, you want to plan to sort of give you, uh, you know, a, a nice resolution of uh, sort of any any issue you can think of. This is really an exercise in. What is the the minimum that you can do, uh, and still confirm a plan? Thanks. And um, so there's another. You know, uh, you mentioned Gavilon. Gavilon's in bankruptcy also. You know, how is that? Um, how is that bankruptcy uh, affected by this? And what's still? Uh, what's what's been settled so far there with their dispute, and what's still left? Right, so Gavilan filed, I want to say in early May, to run a sale process for substantially all of their assets. Um, the recent judge, Marvin Isger, recently ruled in favor of Gavilan on uh, their adversary proceeding against the Sanchez debtors, uh, finding that the Sanchez debtors breached the joint development agreement between the parties, which will uh, shift greater operatorship rights from Sanchez to Gavilan. Uh, this, is a, this is a significant enough value that the Gavilan debtors uh, amended their bid procedures to uh, notify potential bidders that, hey, you know, this, this um, additional degree of, degree of control is, is something we've gained. So, uh, you know, still, still to be seen how it shakes out vis-a-vis uh, -vis Gavilan and Sanchez, but it has already impacted both cases and, and will continue to do so. You know, what, what, what's interesting about that is it certainly affects, um, you know, plan value, and uh, that was, was um, negotiated before, um, but I guess with all the equity, um, potentially going to one party depending on how that lien challenge plays out. I guess it doesn't, doesn't matter as much, but it's just another reminder how this, this um, bankruptcy is constantly shifting. So what are the uh, next steps um, here? What, what, what's the immediate next step? Yeah, so on Friday, the dip lenders filed a motion to set uh, a hearing for the first phase of the lien-related litigation uh, interpreting the, the final dip order. There's a second phase that would come within the, the next month after this uh, first requested hearing on July 29th to deal with any additional issues other than valuation. Um, finally, if there are any valuation issues the court needs to get to, that's, that's sort of stage three. Um, it's notable that the plan actually allows the bankruptcy court to issue in its discretion a final ruling as to the allocation of all or a, a part of the post-effective date, uh, the, the reserved equity distribution at the conclusion of any of these three phases. So that's, that's sort of a big one. Um, also, the settlement agreement that the debtors entered into with uh, affiliate SNMP and uh, several additional parties 
will require the debtors um, in order to obtain lower contract rates on certain of their, their midstream agreements to um, go out and affirmatively reject agreements with certain other parties. Great. Thanks, Sean. Uh, we'll, be, uh, we'll be watching out. Uh, certainly an interesting case, and uh, we'll see if uh, others go down the same route with so many energy companies uh, in bankruptcy. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Thanks for having me on, Mark. And uh, thank you, listeners. Uh, this has been a, another Reorg uh, Weekly Review. Find all our podcasts on the Reorg site media page, iTunes, and SoundCloud, and SoundCloud. And as always, we hope you and your families are healthy and safe. Thank you.